It was like probably the most amount of adrenaline coding ever while making the proof of concept. The second exploit was very hard. I was less convinced that somebody else would be able to figure it out. The entire situation could have been less bad. I had a bunch of auditing firms not started talking about what the exploit was on Twitter because that definitely pointed black hats to it and accelerated them figuring out issues. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to Mantis.app. That is M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with Addison Spiegel. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Hello, everyone. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. It's great to have you on. I just did one with Brock from Flashbots, back to back, once again, starting the whole movement again. <laughs> just for the people that haven't heard of you before or just don't know you, who are you? Yeah, so I'm Addison. I'm the founder and CEO of Thunderhead. We call ourselves Ecosystem as a Service. We build out liquid staking tokens and general ecosystem tooling for newer blockchains. Myself, I'm a longtime entrepreneur. I've been starting small side hustles since I was like eight years old. I've been programming since I was 12. And I'm also a student. I'm 18 and I'm currently a freshman at MIT studying computation and cognition. In oh, business. interesting. Why cognition? Like over my entire time in the crypto industry, I've obviously been able to observe how people react to economic incentives mm -hmm. and how people with different kinds of backgrounds and different needs or priorities react differently to those. And I've always found that very fascinating. And so I'd like to explore that further. And it also extends beyond economic incentives and also into like how different people react to different managerial practices mm -hmm. or how like different people react to different kinds of products. I think learning more about how the brain works fundamentally is pretty informative for all the things I want to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty interested in stuff as well. So what do you really want to do in the future then? My longtime dream is to start and have like a series of several different kinds of companies. Starting companies and building new things is like my favorite thing to do. And so my goal is to start companies, make them self-sufficient, and then move on. Start a new one. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of, I don't really have like any specific industries in mind. I just like building cool things that are impactful. Um, so it's kind of industry agnostic. Okay. Interesting. And so what, what did you do before you got into crypto then? You're an entrepreneurial guy and very interested in these things. So I imagine you did a whole bunch of tinkering and whatnot. But yeah, what did you do before crypto? Yeah. So I was either 15 or 16 when I got into crypto. Before that, I was just doing machine learning research mm. on my own, taking online courses, random stuff like that. Never did anything super substantive. Built an evolution simulator, like a cellular evolution simulator, which was pretty cool. Built a reinforcement learning tic-tac-toe, which was kind of trivial, but it was cool at the time. Before that, I just been like a long time tinker. I had several somewhat failed uh, entrepreneurial startups as well. And then I built a several other software things before that. That's what I was primarily Got working you. on. And you, know, you mentioned ML, right? So this is a very hot topic, I think, <laughs> especially in crypto and like cybersecurity. So I'm wondering, well, why didn't you pursue ML further and just kind of stop there? Yeah, it's actually really funny. My grandfather got me interested into machine learning from like a very yeah. young age. So I was first exposed to it when I was like in middle school. So I did like lots of research into it and learning about it. And my interest for it kind of just naturally petered out as I was like 15-ish. And it's funny, I remember telling my parents once that I was upset that I wasn't five years older because I had already missed out on all of the machine learning improvements mm. that were made. 
Uh, and obviously we know how that went. But yeah, I think, I don't know how, if that was a major factor, kind of just something I lost interest for. I hadn't even done calculus at the time. So all of my understanding of neural networks was just intuitive. And so it kind of, I kind of reached a point where like I needed to have a stronger math background to understand things. So I kind of just moved on. Interesting. I started my uh, ML journey as well and getting into all the math stuff, like linear algebra, calculus, probability and stat. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I think people don't really like math because they don't understand it. But once you start building an intuition for it, it's really quite fun. Yeah, the I hard agree. thing about it is applying it practically to ML or ZK. I think ML is way harder than ZK because you need money to host a server and it's kind of a data problem. So you need all the data and if you build anything, it's kind of hard to compete against these giant teams. And unless you do something very niche, so like crypto cyber live detection or even like exploit generation, like what Pentestify is doing, but they build their own models, right? Like all these people build their own models. And I think that's pretty cool. But obviously, it's pretty hard to get into that kind of expertise of years of experience of tinkering because, you know, it's a data thing. You got to train it. But, you know, we're in the age where it's very interesting and it's going to be like very revolutionary. I don't know how long it's going to take, but we've already seen like big movements with ChatGPT, which isn't even that big relative to what's going to come, kind of like the early days. But I definitely think it's worth learning as well, especially the math. The math will never not be useful, I think. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And it's like funny going back and looking at various machine learning things I didn't understand back when I was researching it now that I have the math background for it. And it's just such like a mind blowing thing. But yeah, once you get like the intuition for the math, it becomes very... Yeah, it's very fun. And for me, I had to just force myself to do it because I knew the rewards later would become like way more fun once it starts clicking. It's kind of like learning a new language. Like if you're learning Rust or MEV, damn, it's so hard but until it clicks and you actually solve something, get that first dopamine hit. It's like a never ending cycle of like... Like, I want to keep going. But yeah, you can get stuck in the theory for quite some time, become like a pure academic and never apply it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I see a lot of people in that path. While I've been yeah, it's unfortunate, I think. Don't apply it. Like imagine just doing math your whole life and then getting into to AI. <laughs> I think that would be pretty sick, but you've got to do the practical stuff as well. What came next then? When you were in crypto, what were the next steps and how that progressed? You did the curve discovery and then... Yeah, so I started Thunderhead in 2021. Okay, when you first got in. Yeah, so when I first mm -hmm. got in, that's like the first thing I ever did in the industry. And it was to service the Pocket Network ecosystem. So for those that aren't aware, Pocket Network is a decentralized RPC network. So you can send an RPC request to Pocket Network rather than Infura for things like sending transactions or querying blockchain data. And rather than a centralized entity sending you the data, you have a decentralized network of nodes okay. that does it. So we built out a staking as a service solution for them, primarily servicing institutional clients. We had like $70 million of pocket staked and had approximately 15% of the state supply. Built a variety of different ecosystem tools for them. Built a block explorer, uh, an RPC analytics tool to track the latency of various RPC providers. And most significantly, we built something called Lean Pocket in tandem with another community contributor. And ultimately, it allowed you to run any amount of validators per full node, which ended up saving the network three to five million a month in infrastructure. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy why that didn't even exist to begin with. But 
that was probably one of the most impactful things to happen. That's to pretty network. crazy. And I think that the idea behind Thunderhead is really smart because I remember I was working on Hashgraph, which was another chain, but they didn't have any infrastructure. Like you couldn't use Foundry, you couldn't fork the network to test. It wasn't like an ether scan, it was just a really shitty block explorer. You couldn't read anything or even look at contracts. It's trying to implement some yield farming optimizers for the two protocols on it. <laughs> it was just a horrible experience. I ended up like not doing it at all. Even though the opportunity was there, it was just way too hard dev experience wise. And you know, something like Thunderhead is like the perfect solution where you're just building all the infrastructure and whatnot for these chains that are just like starting up or don't have the inference to surround them and really build the ecosystem, which eventually just die, I think. So it was pretty good, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's exactly the niche we like to fill. A lot of newer networks, the team likes to focus a lot on the core protocol and less so on kind of the surrounding ecosystem, whether that's block explorers or analytical tools. And so that's what the role that we like to fill. And it also just bolsters the ecosystem as a whole, having another party contributing that's not the mm -hmm. core team. And then we also contribute as well via liquid staking. For Pocket Network, we also launched a liquid staking token. I find liquid staking to be especially beneficial for newer networks because most of these new networks that are coming online, they're primarily infrastructure networks and they need to have a large amount of the supply staked in order to be economically secure. And then liquid staking basically makes that super easy for anybody who's a holder to contribute to the security of the network. And so, yeah, we had one of those for Pocket Network with 18 million assets staked. We're actually launching another one soon for Chainflip, which is the next ecosystem that we're participating in. And that's with in. a LIDO, right? Yeah, we're effectively building a LIDO model yeah, this is pretty impressive. I remember my first year, I just built like an exchange and like an NFT launch pad. And then I kind of got into MEV after that. But it seems like you really hit the nail on the head with finding an opportunity and capturing it. And I think a lot of protocols would want the service, I think. Are you maintaining it as well or are you handing it over? Yeah, it ultimately depends on what the product is. It really just depends. Sometimes it's something we build that's continue, like we continually improve upon and maintain. Other times the team will just pay us to build something. And then once we build it, hand it off to them for maintenance. Obviously the liquid staking tokens, we continually work on that and maintain right. them. Yeah, just really just and did depends. it start as just like a passion project or did you just like reach out to someone and say, hey, we're going to build this. And then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, do it for us and we'll buy it off you or something like that. Yeah, so it just started. I was just joined the Pocket Network and I just realized that there were so many different things that needed to be built and I just started working on all those things. And then eventually the staking opportunity became uh, pretty significant and so hired a team to help yeah, that's that super out. cool. And you guys are entirely self-funded as well. Even more impressive. <laughs> I think people that start off with just the wit and the want to do things will always come out on top because it's not money-driven or anything. It's just the passion to do it. And you know, if you have the yeah. passion, money just kind of follows as well eventually you get good, right? So if you're passionate about something, you're always going to do it and then do something good, people fund you, etc. Now you have a team size of seven. So how do you really manage a team like that, especially at such a young age? I think it's something people don't really experience. Yeah, just back on the first thing, I think one of the key advantages of our company and culture as a whole is we always strive to like create value for the ecosystem at hand first and then like make money later. Like a lot of the things we've done have been like lost leaders or just things we kind of did the bolster the ecosystem and then that indirectly comes back and be a network effect. So yeah, and then as far as the team goes, management's definitely been my single point of most growth throughout this entire time. It's very difficult to go from like not even working for someone to then managing several engineers yeah. and so that's just something i was thrown into and had to figure it out all the way from like 
barely being able to like specify what exactly I want done and having major confusion between the developer and me to like now having a more robust management system with like syncs and project management and specs and all of that stuff. Uh, it's been a lot of growth. And I'm yeah, I out. think the main downfall of any company is actually the communication because you can have the best developers in the world on the same team, but if you're not communicating and if someone's just slacking off or someone builds something or someone else is building the exact same thing, it's just like, what's happening? It all kind of goes to shit. It's like if you have a team of superstars in a sport, but they don't know how to play together, it's like, what's the point of the superstars then? You would rather have a team, like an average team, that can work well together. And, you know, engineering is a sport in that sense as well, in, in terms of like a team game. Sure, you can do it by yourself, but it comes to a point where you need to upscale and have everyone working efficiently and communicating and all that stuff. So it is a very good skill to have. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It's like sports teams that have great players and a shitty coach. I've learned that in a lot of instances, like poor performance and output is in a lot of instances a function of me, the manager, rather than the developer themselves. Because in a lot of instances, it's like something I, I could have communicated something more clearly or thought something out to a deeper level or researched like the problem a little bit better. And that in some instances, like a much greater impact on productivity than something the developer could figure out themselves. Mm. That makes sense. And that was another thing that I've experienced is hair program programming some other teams do this as well is you pair people up like the entire team just pair programming because then they're just kind of bouncing ideas together and you know if someone messes up there's someone to correct them and kind of like a tutor except you're both the tutor yeah we we don't really we don't have anybody we don't have like more than one person for a given role so we've never tried that i wanted to though but it doesn't make sense for us to do and we have so many different projects that it's very rare that we have more than one person working on one. Yeah, that them. makes sense. So everyone's doing a project themselves for the company, basically, because you don't have enough staff, obviously. And these are not small projects as well. <laughs> huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, so like, for example, like stake flip, there's multiple components to that. You have like the Oracle, the smart contracts, the validators, like one person does each of those things. So they kind of are working on the same project, but not the same. Things. When did you really find this curve exploit? This is one that was interesting because it was a compiler one that would have been there for a while. How long would that be in years, maybe months? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was there for the the compiler issue was there for like two years. I've always been really interested in security. I've always found all of the hacks and all of the bugs and bug bumps that people have gotten to be very interesting. And so anytime there's been some sort of major hack or major bug bounty, I always like reach into the exploit and try to understand how it works. And then anytime someone like Peck Shield tweets about an exploit on Twitter, I always go look immediately to try to figure out what happened and to learn about it. And doing that actually ended up being very profitable for the curve thing because I was just on Twitter. I saw that the curve ETH pool was exploited. I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. I went and looked at it. And keep in mind, this exploit had already happened. So someone had already exploited the compiler bug and had drained, I think, like $15 million or something. By the time I got to the pool to like look at it and see what happened, there was five or 6,000 ETH left in it and like 10 curve. And when I saw that, I was really confused why that ETH was still there because of like state Table swap invariance when the asset values are significantly out of whack it should mean that you should be able to swap a very small amount of one asset for a huge value of the other asset and so when i tried to simulate a swap to test that out it failed and from doing a bunch of fuzz testing for a uh, stake flip i had worked a ton with curve contracts and so i knew that anytime that the balances were significantly disproportionate there would be some sort of rounding error that would like cause it to just brick and so i checked the internal balance 
balances of the pool to confirm that this was the case. And the internal balances were A, not aligned with how they actually were, and B, ridiculously out of line with reality. And so I read through the rest of the contract to figure out like which functions would cause a sync to the internal accounting to the actual balances. And it turns out there is just one function called claim admin fees that would effectively calculate how much fees the pool has accrued, send that to the curve governance, and then also sync the internal accounting with the actual balances. And so I tried to simulate that call and it failed. And so from what I mentioned before with the rounding issue, I realized that you could just donate some amount of curve, call claim admin fees, and then the pool would become unbricked and you'd be able to swap for thousands of ETH for a tiny amount of curve. So I made the proof of concept, donated 100,000 curve, claimed the admin fee, and then swapped to 200,000 curve, and you get 3,500 ETH in return. And keep in mind, 200,000 curve is 80 grand, and 3,500 ETH at the time was like just under 7 million. <laughs> yeah. So, good swap. Yeah, pretty good swap. <laughs> I'd never made an actual exploit before. I had just learned about it. And so I didn't want to try to execute this myself because that would likely lead to failure. So I tried to reach out to the Curve team. I didn't know anyone on the Curve team. So I just made a tweet on Twitter. Please, someone from the Curve team reach out to me. And then 10 minutes later, I was in talks with one of their devs, explained the issue to them, made the proof of concept, or showed, the, showed them the proof of concept. Michael, the Curve founder, ended up DMing me to talk about it some more. And then once that issue was confirmed, we I got invited to the White Hat group where the story continues. Oh, yeah. Very interesting sequence of events. And it got even more interesting as well once you were in the group chat, right? It went for a couple of days, actually, this entire process. Yeah, so like once we I got into the group chat, I shared the exploit with other people. All their auditors were there as well working on it. So I shared this with them. One of them converted it into uh, a flash loan uh, template. And then they actually inadvertently leaked the exploit to the nice. pool. <laughs> which is a, a definite no-no because it got picked up by a generalized front runner who just copied the payload, submitted a higher fee, and took the 7 million. Yeah, I think a common thing with White Hat such actually at the moment is they don't know about MEV or even private mempools like a flashbots. And it's such an obvious thing where you literally just switch the RPC and send a private bundle or private transaction, but nobody knows about it. And it's a core thing about security and it just completely removes the front running aspect. So yeah, pretty interesting. But I mean, <laughs> getting front run like the first one got front ran and they had to do another one. So it was actually two exploits. <laughs> yeah. So I think they intended to use the private mempool and there was a foundry environment misconfiguration where they weren't sure which RPC URL it was actually going to use. You have one in the script, one in the environment and one in the foundry config. Like they weren't sure which one it used. That ended up getting front run by CoffeeBade. And I actually tweeted on Twitter that we got beat by 30 seconds or something like that. I forget what I said. And we said this at the time because we didn't even know that we had gotten front run. And we found out that we had gotten front run three hours later when someone on Twitter tweeted that we had gotten front run. The other person, I guess, didn't even realize. But yeah, that exploit ended up leaving 700 ETH left in the pool. And then that was what we spent like the next five days trying to... The next cover. five days. That's it's like... A... Yeah, I worked... That was... I was probably the hardest I've worked, probably top three hardest times I've worked uh, in terms of like time and effort and focus to recover. Yeah, that. you don't really hear about people. I mean, it's like all the money is there and it's like a race. That's a long time. Five days of constant anxiety of can we get this money out before someone else does is uh, something people would not experience. <laughs> it's Nobody yeah. knows, they hit it, and then people know. But there's two exploits already. People must be looking for another one. And I think this is a time, this people were like mentioning the exploit before it was like even completely finished. So it was like a huge controversy on Twitter. 
Yeah, the first one, I definitely felt that way. Because it was, first exploit was more trivial. And so it was like probably the most amount of adrenaline ever coding ever while making the proof of concept. And the second exploit was very hard. I was less convinced that somebody else would be able to figure it out before we could. I think, as you said, the entire situation could have been significantly less bad had a bunch of like auditing firms not started talking about what the exploit was on Twitter because that definitely pointed black hats to it and accelerated them figuring yeah. out issues. Yeah, and when you're developing this proof of concept, what was really going for your mind of how were you making the decisions to do one input over another or one function before another function? What were you really doing to heuristically decide these sequences and orders of inputs? Yeah, so on the first one, there wasn't much you could have done differently. You had to donate some amount to get the claim admin fees to pass. And so I just tried a few values to get something that was like reasonably small. And I'll never forget the feeling of running that test case and seeing, like, you know, because when you have a proof of concept, like the first line, it's like attacker balance before, flash flow and balance before, and then like attacker balance after, flash flow and balance after. And I'll never forget like running that and seeing it increase by 3,500 ETH. That was like a completely surreal moment. I was like, there's no way this is this is real. Because that's something I've only imagined to have before being able to discover. And I feel like during that time, when you're faced with that amount of money at your fingertips, I'm sure the human instinct to go full greed kicks in. But then you have your ethics that you revert back to. I'm sure that would have happened to some degree, right? Actually, really? No. Oh. It just like doesn't make any sense to even try to actually steal money. Like even so like outside of a moral standpoint, the moral thing is probably the first thing I go to. But even if you look at it like in terms solely of EV and like disregard your moral standpoint, first of all, it's like A, you can either exploit the money and take the full amount or get a bug bounty. And in terms of a bug bounty is maybe it's obviously not even close to the full amount, five or ten percent. But when you get to like that large of amount, your utility of having the entire exploit amount versus the bug bounty amount is not significantly different. And so when you justify the probability of getting caught exploiting it, which is extremely high, given that pretty much every single RPC tra is tracking IPs, every block builder is tracking your IP, any chain analysis probably has broken tornado cache. There's no way to have on-chain, complete on-chain privacy when you have governments and surveillance agencies after you. But just like when you calculate all those factors, it just literally zero sense to do. And then on top of that, you have like the moral problems of stealing other people's money which is just dumb, yeah so. i'm sure these other people when they see this large amount of money it switches from like white hat to gray hat or maybe they're just naturally black hat and they're just like oh sick let's do it but you know these people are very naive in doing the exploits so as you said you know everybody's tracking it you got governments and whatnot so you actually have to be smarter than these people which good luck you're formulating a massive plan and you know all the risks involved and what you really have to do, which is, you know, a lot of effort. But even then, you still have the anxiety of always looking over your back, not knowing whether your door's going to get kicked in, getting dragged to prison, or even, like, something maybe worse if you're in a different country. But yeah, like, if you can do it once, you can do it again. <laughs> Just, uh, just keep doing those bug bounties. But yeah, it's interesting that you got into, like, cybersecurity, so why aren't you pursuing that? Yeah, if I wasn't so busy with school and Thunderhead, I would definitely be grinding bug bounties and competitive audits and solo audits just because that whole space right now is like, there's a ridiculous imbalance between amount of capital that wants to find bugs and amount of people who are competent enough to look for them. Like you see solo auditors making 100, 200K a month doing this. And then you see people like finding eight figure bug bounties. And so if I had more time, that's like the next best thing I would be doing. Oh yeah, right definitely. I think it's a super, probably one of the most interesting 
existing fields, I wouldn't be doing anything different from automating cyber. But I just find it's like where all the power is and it's very difficult problems. So you never really get bored and there's not a lot of people doing it. So it's very niche as well. And it kind of is just agnostic to everything as well. You know, everything is bytecode and binary. So you can kind of switch between languages and different fields like Web2, Web3, eventually cyber as well. I mean, eventually AI when that comes into play as well. Like that would be a new field like AI cyber. So super keen to see all that play. But, you know, you mentioned when you were first doing the proof of concepts, right? You had the admin admin fee claim, right? The admin earn. How did you, before you even knew that you needed that, how did you know the very first step was this imbalance? I mean, it just like maybe from XY equals K intuition. Like I opened up the pool, I saw 30 curve and like 4,000 ETH. And just my intuition from swapping on Uniswap told me that that's prime for a very profitable trade. Mm, okay. So it was more about other reserves, correct? Is it not like rounding properly, et cetera? And then going from there, basically. Yeah. Well, just like effectively, there's several thousand ETH in the pool and like a few dozen curve. And so if you just calculate the spot price of that, you have one curve for several. Okay, years. got you. And then the aim was to unbrick it. So you look for the functions that enable that. And there was only one function. And so you try and formulate a sequence that allows you to do that and then get back into that swap. Yeah, pretty much. Like the claim admin fee basically allows the pool to become functional again. And then once the pool becomes functional again, you can swap some amount of curve to get... Okay, got you. And how did you know how much to really donate as well? I just tried a bunch oh, of okay, like fuzzing. Until I got, I basically just manually fuzzed it with like bi- like mental binary search to figure out the lowest amount mm. possible. Okay, interesting. Because it would have been, when you donate it, it switches the reserves up a bit, right? Yeah, it, it increases the curve amount so it passes. Like my hypothesis was it wasn't passing before because it was too small. So like there was some rounding that would happen, like some rounding that would happen to make it divide by zero. And so you just have to get it sufficiently large so that it doesn't round to hmm. zero. And what was the original hack that caused all of this? It was like a re-entrancy, right? Because the Viper compiler yeah. wasn't like the re-entrancy feature they added wasn't correct. Yeah, so the original exploit was Viper has a feature called some function decorators called reentrant locks. Effectively, what those do is when you call the function at the very beginning of the function, it sets the storage slot to one and it only continues if the storage slot was originally set to zero. So that way, if there's a reentrancy, the storage slot set to one and the function will revert because that would be causing a reentrancy. But what they did wrong was that in specific versions of Viper, the compiler reentrant lock used different storage slots. So you could effectively only block reentrancy for one specific function. And so cross-function reentrancies were possible. And so what the exploit was, you would add some liquidity to the pool. Then you remove liquidity and then it would transfer you the ETH prior to updating the D value of the pool, which is effectively kind of like it's analogous to K for Uniswap V2. And so it transfers you to ETH before updating this D value. And so when it transfers you to ETH, that calls a fallback function on your contract, which then allows you to call remove liquidity. Again, it was an exchange. So first you could call exchange and then you could perform a swap while you're like in the middle of a remove liquidity. And then once you perform the exchange, you add liquidity again and then remove liquidity completes. And this cycle basically allows you to take out more money than you hmm, put in. Interesting. And and you mentioned postmortem research. So what was your strategy to really get to understand everything once it already happened and then eventually dive deep into, okay, what else is there? What can I do? 
uh, in what sense? Like after the exploit happened? Yeah, yeah. You know, when people were tweeting or on Twitter, you obviously were curious and went to investigate, but then you had to do research on what is possible. Why did this happen? What is the state now? And is there still exploits? Like, I think a lot of people in general just use these transaction explorers and it kind of makes like a graph for you and then you read other people's postmortems and then go figure it out because you have some context but maybe it was like just so you know rapid that you didn't have time to do that and so you had to do it manually from scratch basically so yeah what was your kind of strategy go-to strategy to really understand it quickly yeah, so Curve V2 math is very difficult to understand. And so the first exploit didn't really re- require any knowledge of V2 math because you can kind of like black box all of that away and just think about it in terms of like a mispriced pool that's unbricked and you need to, un- or a mispriced pool that's bricked. And in order to take advantage of the mispricing, you have to unbrick it. And that doesn't require V2 math. But The next exploit, I knew intuitively that it was still exploitable because there was several hundred ETH left in the pool and a small amount of curve. And by the second, the previous exploit's logic, like you should still be able to retrieve those funds. Except this time, the exploit, the donation didn't work because you would have to donate several tens of millions of curve to donate instead to unbrick it, which is then not profitable. So I looked at the original curve the original exploits on the curve there was no like postmortems or anything out at the time so i just had to like analyze it myself and figure out what happened so i just opened it up in falcon and then saw this like add liquidity remove liquidity and then re-enter exchange add liquidity kind of pattern happening over and over again and so i started another exploit template kind of implementing this pattern and then tried it a few times and with the parameters that the original exploiter used were kind of naive like had they done proper parameters they could have drained the entire pool right. not yeah. um not left any left but this time the parameters were naive and so it didn't work for this smaller amount that was left in the pool and so i just had to adjust these parameters to make it work and this was like that sole act was the focus of the five days that it took and that was like us several other white hats and like the curve team all working on it because it's very difficult to understand curve math by itself and then when you're doing half of the curve math and then restarting the curve math and then finishing it after you've already done some other computation it gets even more complicated so in some sense we just treated the math as like a black box and kind of just tweak parameters and understood how the different tweaks affected outputs then tweak the parameters accordingly and then you eventually had to put in all that curve to, to get it to work again which is when you flash learned yeah so i forget the exact amounts i think the flash learn amounts were like some amount of heat I think it was a few hundred ETH and some few millions of curve with the flash loan donations. So you effectively flash load, donate, and then repeat this re-entrance cycle I mentioned earlier with like custom parameters and then that. Right, right. So you have to basically redo the original hack, but with the the extra step of the donation to reset it, basically. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. And you did it all manually. You didn't do any fuzzing to get the actual values to, to donate. Yeah, so there was some other people in the group were working on making some simulations for it. The problem is it's pretty hard to simulate because hard to fuzz because the original parameters we inputted were like on the order of like 10 to the 20 and the inputs that like actually ended up being the ones we needed were like on the order of 10 to the 3. And so maybe a fuzzer might not have like been able to go in that wide range. And then there's so many different loops as well that I think it would have just been feasible computationally for like a fuzzer to just go through everything. Obviously, if we had more time and full understanding of the math, then we probably could have done it and it would have been easier. 
but in our instance, it wasn't. I had thought of doing some sort of like gradient descent where each step is some, some set of parameters to input to this loop. And then you want to maximize like the amount that you're pulling out. And it didn't end up working because the surface um, of this uh, pool wasn't continuous because if there were some parameters you could input that would withdraw like a super large amount of funds, but then it would brick the pool again. And so the next withdrawal wouldn't have been able to be successful. Mm. Yeah, I so. think the thing with the math is if you put in one one value, it kind of changes everything. And you have to be able to determine the relationship between that input value and the math behind it. So like the multiply, et cetera, like divide, all this stuff. And I think that's the hard part. Because if you change it, the whole all the ranges change and then maybe conditionals later on no longer work. And I think that's why the fuzzing is hard in general. So it's like a problem of what specific ranges do you need to be able to bypass the the conditionals later on in the function to be able to, you know, obviously take out all the money. But yeah, you have to figure that out somehow. And you guys basically just like brute forced it in some way. And then what would you say was the feedback loop in, in this kind of brute forcing you guys did to really get to the point of deducting it by... 17 powers right <laughs> yeah it was basically just like trying random numbers and seeing what happened and ultimately we got it like i got it kind of close to where i drained the pool within 70 heat of being profitable and then robert from ottersack tweaked the parameters even further and got it to like 30 ETH of profitability and ultimately he realized that kind of abstracting all the curve math away that this operation allows you to inflate the amount of like in a way he kind of he figured out like what this loop is doing to the pool rather than how it does it and what it did is increased the pool's perceived balance of curve so that it put the ETH at a very significant discount even though there is very little curve in the pool. Mm. so he did this he kind of figured out that pattern and then after that i realized that this kind of effect happens regardless of how much ETH you're adding to the pool and so that's why we like decrease the amount of ETH to add from 10 to the 20 to 10 to the 3, just to be the bare minimum for this re-entrancy to happen. Um, and then that ended up... Working. So you're trying to find the minimum amount to get to basically pass the conditional. You want to add as little funds to the pool as possible and take out as many as possible while preserving, the, preserving that the pool works. Yeah, yeah. Know. So, I mean, you guys could have just started at zero and then went up, right? So why did you start so high up initially? That just because that's what the original exploit. Oh, was. okay, right. That makes um, sense. And so we didn't really like fully understand how it worked, and so yeah, we just started. And it's like intuitively, it's kind of weird that it it did work with such a hmm. little amount. That means just the the original hacker just had a very bad input. Then why why do it so hard if you could do it very small? I mean, so high instead of much smaller. So just trigger the reentrancy initially. Yeah, I think the attacker, well, so A, the attacker was pretty sloppy. They submitted into the public. I think most people do, though, <laughs> unless they actually know what they're doing. Yeah. So I think this person maybe just stumbled upon this and like, oh, like found something that like drained some money and then submitted it as it like the parameters weren't sophisticated. And then also not using not using private RPC is pretty unsophisticated as well. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I wonder, you know, what. I wonder about the the hackers that actually use private mempools and plan for this 
like in advance i feel like a majority of them is more just you know stumble across it and then like oh my god like the adrenaline rush and then you're trying to do it as quick as possible so no one else gets it because i think it might be like a you know a a timer in their mind before someone picks it up (laughs) and that's probably why they don't optimize it as much or even think about the consequences and whatnot so i think that happened with the index finance guy like he got caught and someone made a whole video on him (laughs) yeah that guy was like yeah uh, i mean he first he was asked he asked he was like talking to the team like he was asking the actual team questions about the math to like understand how he could exploit it then exploits it and makes a twitter account talking about himself and how he's like a math person or whatever and so i think like some combination of those two factors is how you got yeah it doesn't make sense if you're gonna hack something why talk about it publicly (laughs) yeah most of most of most hackers seem to be pretty pretty weirdly dumb but in some instances that's good because then it means more funds can be yeah yeah of course yeah yeah it's just kind of weird though like the the egotistical and i think it's always the young people as well i've only seen a few people in like their 30s i remember seeing one guy in his 30s get get picked up but he was like he had a very impressive like resume or history he was like at aws and google but i think majority of the hackers are kind of just teenagers unfortunately the um Euler hacker was like 20 or something he had literally no idea what he was the doing. repercussions like oh okay now i'm in prison yeah it just makes no sense it's very bizarre hmm. that's interesting yeah the the whole do you think you could actually automate this to a point like if you were to automate this entire hack what would you do theoretically to first be able to identify that there's something here there's, there's a trigger like maybe the trigger would be like <laughs> oh this this insane exchange rate with ETH would be the trigger, right? But then you have to figure out, like, how would you get that? And, you know, you've already done it in your mind. So I guess, how would you turn that into a program? Is this alpha for your security? No. Oh. Yeah, essentially, if I had to automate it, I don't know. I think a bot wouldn't have been able to kind of maybe come up with the exploit originally. But, like, maybe if you told a bot, like this is a possible avenue for an exploit like help me produce help me figure out how to save the money faster that possibly might be an avenue but i doubt there's like a generalized thing you can look i mean maybe there's like trivial things like oh like fuzz re-entrancy on all these contracts to like see if you can Hmm. but maybe that's like pretty hard Hmm. yeah i think the initial ability to withdraw because it's not just a withdrawal it's a swap that's the thing it's not like there's a strict withdrawal function deposit function it's more of a an exchange that was vulnerable instead so it was was just a a crazy exchange right which was ultimately the hack it'd be interesting i think you would have to somehow find out recognize that the exchange rate is ridiculous but then figure out the sequence to well it was also bricked which is an interesting thing so it wasn't like oh you have to manipulate it in a way like oracle manipulation but it was more of like unbricking a system to then be able to use it which you know then when you get into the math stuff it was an input of a number and you're trying to find how can i get the minimal amount but as you said you guys just randomly brute forced it so maybe there was another way of like systematically finding out the minimum amount to or like the relationship between the values and what the input was versus the how it interacted with all the other variables in terms of math you can think of people i think the initial instinctive solution to that would be formal verification but that that wouldn't give you the optimal or minimal amount though 
So that's the only issue. It'll just give you a random one that solves it or doesn't solve it. Yeah. I mean, you could, like, given enough time, like, construct a proof for, like, given certain full state, like, the optimal parameters to use to take the most amount possible. But that requires, like, fully understanding the map which wasn't really feasible. Yeah, and I think this was quite a simple exploit actually as well because it didn't utilize multiple contracts, like cross contracts that weren't really related in any way. It was just like all within the same protocol, So, which is like great for reducing complexity. <laughs> yeah, The ones that are very uh, interesting are the ones that like interact from protocol A and protocol B. They have like this kind of relationship inherently. And then you have to kind of like formulate different functions and different sequences to to get to an unintended state. Because, you know, human error, there's just, there's always something, right? I mean, this thing was two years old. So imagine what else is out there. But yeah, man, I'm super excited to see how it all plays out for you. Hopefully you get into the cybersecurity space, man. I think you have a bright future there, especially, you know, finding this so early and being uh, interested in the postmortems as well and diving deep into that. I'm, I'm personally trying to do that right now. I find it kind of difficult, mainly because I've never done it before, but I'll eventually get there. You can even try live streaming post-mortem stuff as well. That's what I, I think I'm going to try and do, just to kind of like share it. But it's interesting though. Yeah, I saw, it too. I, saw you, I saw you I saw you tweet that. I think that'd be interesting too, to like watch. And People finance one right now. I find that one probably one of the hardest or most complex ones out there. And I think going from the very complex ones just makes the other ones very simple and like easy to recognize or do. You know, so, and, you know, if you get the pinnacle of hacking in, in Web3, you should be able to, you know, do the easy ones. <laughs> but yeah, the, it's very important to understand stuff at its very lowest level, in my opinion, because then every, everything else just becomes much simpler. Because A lot of people with the postmortems now are just, actually all of them really, are really just, you know, explaining what happened, but they never explain why did the hacker choose to do, um, this function over the norm why did it divert why did he divert divert into another sequence what made him think about going into this other sequence rather than going like a normal execution path there always must it must be a trigger that these people think about right so that's my kind of point of view and you know if you want to get good at it why not study the the actual ones that happen that take hundreds of millions tens of millions so you got the all the source material right there you just gotta put in the work but yeah man it's been great talking to you, Addison, and I, I think you've got a bright future ahead of you. You're just starting MIT and you know running funny underhead. It's going quite well, and I'm sure you'll get into cyber later down the road. Hopefully, uh, you'll get pilled in and you'll, you'll do it full time. <laughs> yeah, that's something I've been want, ever wanting to do more in it. Yeah, so. I, I'm like, didn't curve off you a job after that? <laughs> I did not have the ability to take that on and do it as well as I'd like. Yeah, to. Yeah, maybe down so. the road. But yeah, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I, I really hope for the best in your journey. Thank you very much for having me on. Looking forward to staying in touch. Of course, yeah. Uh, we'll definitely have a chat later down the road as well. See how you all progress, do a little life update. <laughs> but until then, yeah, be great. take care and thanks for jumping on. Yep. Yeah.